0: You shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, will you join me as we pray? Father, we pray that all the things that you proclaim your word to be, light, food, a sword, we pray that you would do your work. Each of us needs it desperately, and we pray that you would take the smallest amount of faith and bless it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, many of us just had a feast, Thanksgiving. And I would ask you, uh, what makes a good feast for you? What makes a good feast? Is it the food? That one thing that you look forward to having, maybe it's every year. For me, it's sweet potatoes. You know, the, 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 uh, the non-dessert, free dessert that comes before the desserts. Uh, maybe for you, it's something else. Uh, it's likely, I'm guessing, folks around the table. You could have the best food in the world, but if the company's sour... That's not going to be a good feast, right? And so, physical, emotional, but how about spiritual? Do you think spiritual is important to a great feast? I mean, a feast for the body's good, and one for the heart's better. But a feast for the soul, now that's downright satisfying at the deepest level. Last night I was uh, reading uh, a book of Puritan prayers because that's how preachers spend their Saturday nights. Yeah, you know, we're just so above the normal thing. We no, just kidding. Actually, I hadn't read this one in a while, so I opened it up, and uh, it turned out the one that was marked where I was, uh, I was to read last was uh, entitled "Thanksgiving and Praise." I thought, hey, and I read this, and I thought it was so beautiful. Oh, my God, when I think upon thee, 10,000 delightful thoughts spring up. 10,000 sources of pleasure are unsealed. 10,000 refreshing joys spread over my heart, crowding into every moment of happiness. I bless thee for the body thou hast given me, for preserving its strength and vigor, for providing senses to enjoy delights. I bless thee for a full table, An overflowing cup for appetite, taste, sweetness. I bless thee for social joys of relatives and friends, for the ability to serve others, for a heart that feels sorrows and necessities, for a mind to care about my fellow man. I bless thee for loved ones and the joys of heaven, and for my own expectation of seeing thee clearly. I love thee above the powers of language to express for what thou art to thy creatures. In that prayer, you really hear all three, don't you? You hear uh, thanksgiving for the feast of the body and for the social relationships. But then deep, deep down, this idea that you, O God, are the centerpiece of my feast. God wanted ancient Israel to know that. And so he structured their worship calendar around feasts. They were a feasting people. God commanded it would be in the law. And as we move to this last sermon in our series on the shadows of Christ, looking at the ancient worship of Israel, I want us to look at the feasts and the festivals. And as you do, you'll find there's two themes that come out in the several feasts. And it's basically this. Thanking God as the one who's the provider of sustenance, your daily needs, and the one who's the provider of salvation, our eternal need. Let's look at those two things together. First of all, God is the provider of sustenance. If you look at hymnals that were written in the 17th through 19th century, you find that there's a category of hymn. They're called harvest hymns. Harvest hymns. Some of the titles are, Bountiful Harvest, Fields Gold Are Glowing, For Fruit of All Creation. Now, for modern folk like ourselves, you know, we're sort of removed from the planting and the harvesting, right? I mean, we're more, more likely to sing a hymn, the praise to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. We're not really connected with that idea and so it's a little bit harder for us to understand God as provider, isn't it? We have to labor a little bit more to see his hand. And so God gave his people the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. It was called the Feast of Weeks because seven weeks after the first fruits feast, they had a feast that offered first fruits. Seven weeks after that, God had them have another feast. Right? You would think, well, didn't they just learn that lesson? He really wants them to know this. And so they would have this feast of weeks, 50 days after. And there were three different things that he says, and you see it in the passage, that he wanted them to do during this feast. The first thing is rejoice. He actually commands them to rejoice. Now, that's sort of an odd thing, isn't it? Well... I find that I often need to be reminded or maybe even commanded to rejoice. Yesterday I was having one of those mopey days. You know, have you ever had those mopey days? There's not really any reason. Nothing's gone wrong. You're just kind of, eh. You know, you just, everything's just kind of blah. Maybe it was, uh, you know, uh, my body recovering from all the food I ate. I don't know. But I needed to be pushed to rejoice. And you find that in the New Testament as well, where Paul is saying, be joyful, rejoice. And that's because we have a tendency to not be thankful to God. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible totally affirms legitimate times of grief and suffering. It doesn't have this idea where you've got to paint a smile on your face. But it also tells us because of sin, because of our own self-centeredness and selfishness, we are prone not to rejoice. Romans 1 actually talks about this. A mark of the world falling into sin became a joyless world, or at least joyless to God. So he calls them to rejoice. The second thing he calls them to is to rest, and we talked about this last week, to Sabbath. Really, all the festivals fall under Sabbath. They all involve rest to some degree. And I mentioned last week that rest really is a sign that you trust God with your work. It may be the chief sign that you trust God with your work. That He gave you the work. That He'll help you get the work done. And that the work you did is enough for a day. It guards us from our work becoming the God that rules our lives. So He calls them to rest. And then He invites them or calls them to remember And there it's remember the vulnerable. You see this in verse 11. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and female servant, the Levite who is within your town, that was the priest, but then the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. I mentioned before how theologians refer to in the Old Testament, they call it the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the fatherless in the sojourner. We would call them the alien or the immigrant. They all had something in common. Another name they go by is the landless. Back in those days, land was everything, right? I mean, land was your sustenance. Land was your money. Land was your shelter. These were folks that had no land. And so God says remember, but He says more than remember, they need to be included in the feast. This is not a feast that's exclusive for those that are in need. They are to be at the table. With you. Reminds me of something Jesus said, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He was referring to that tendency that we all have to invite people to our table to give us some benefit. You know, Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a networking benefit, or maybe it's, they just make me feel good, or maybe they make really good pumpkin pie. You know, whatever the reason is, but we invite them for that reason. And Jesus said, don't just invite the people that benefit you. And here's what happens. When I'm sitting across the table from someone who's struggling with the bills or from someone that's been treated unjustly in society, it's just not a matter. When I give thanks, I can't help but think of their burden because they're sitting across the table. Martin Luther, as he gave comments on the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, when you come to the line, give us this day our daily bread. He said that is really a prayer for a thriving economy, a good job, and a just society. That's really what the daily bread involves. A thriving economy, we should pray that. A good job for people, we should pray that. And a just society where people are treated in a way where they are not oppressed into the place of poverty. The Lord provides. And the way that He provides, interestingly enough, right at this feast, the way the Lord provides for people on hard times is with people that are on good times. Right? And so we see that the two are connected together. And the motive is clear. He says, because you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. You know, if you read the Old Testament, God is saying that forever and ever and ever, over and over, don't forget you were a slave in Egypt. Don't forget you were a slave in Egypt. Why does he do that? Because we are prone, right, to not think about our weakness and bondage and sin. It's not an easy thing to think about your weakness, to contemplate the place you were. And so these feasts are really a source of what we'd call covenant renewal. As people feasted together, God was renewing in their minds his promise and commitment to them, and they were renewing in their hearts their commitment to him as well. We have it in the Lord's table, our feast that we have weekly together. Now in the early church sometimes they would have a, you know, an all-out feast called a love feast, but then they would have this as a feast. And what happens at this table? Well, we renew our covenant at this table. Those that believe and trust in God's promise come forward, and he feeds them. But there's more than that that happens. There's also a responsibility, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But there's one other feast we should look at before we move on to salvation, and that is God is the provider of protection. And this is the Feast of Purim that shows up later, a couple hundred years later. The book of Esther was written in part so that the people would remember to celebrate the Feast of Purim. And if you've read it, you understand that story, right? Israel is facing basically annihilation. And God, by His providence and His plans, delivers them through Queen Esther and her uncle Mordecai. I, I was thinking, you know, we, we should maybe uh, have no fear feasts. we're such anxious people. We're such fearful people. You know, feasts where you just get together and say, the reason for this feast is for us to celebrate that God will protect me. He will take care of me. But we do have that feast. It's this one. (laughs) He sets our tables before our enemies. That no matter what tries to conquer me, I will rise and have this table with Him in heaven. That we might remember that God is my buffer. God is my protector. That He has promised to do that. He is the God of our sustenance. And these feasts and festivals were to remind Israel of that. They're to remind us of that. But chiefly, He was the God of salvation. Let's look at that second point. The Greek name for the Feast of Weeks was a word that translated the number 50. And I bet some of you know what that word is. Anybody? Anybody? Think Acts chapter 2. Starts with a P. Pentecost. There we go. Pentecost. Yeah, the Greek name for the Feast of Weeks is Pentecost. Now, the reason I tell you this, I'm not just sort of giving you Bible trivia. You go, hey, listen, don't make us feel bad, Glenn. You, you like studied all, you know, you, you went to seminary for this stuff, okay? Uh, that's true, and I had to look it up as well, so I wasn't trying to make you feel bad. I just know a lot of you are smarter than me. So when you go to Acts chapter 2... A couple things happen there, right? And Acts chapter 2 is really, in many ways, the birth of the church. Jesus Christ has risen and gone to heaven. Paul will call him the first fruits from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. And there it is. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he says to his disciples, I don't want you to take off and do ministry without me. You hang out here. and What I'm going to do, I'm going to send you the advocate, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon them, and he falls upon them at a very particular time. He falls upon them at the time when Jewish adult males were in Jerusalem from all over the nations because it was the Feast of Weeks. And some of these feasts said, you've got to show up. You've got to go to Jerusalem. And so they're celebrating the harvest, but God plans a different sort of harvest. A harvest of souls. He pours His Spirit upon the apostles and they begin to preach the gospel of salvation in tongues that they didn't know, but in tongues of the people. And the people begin to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ of salvation. And as they preach... We're told that thousands of thousands of people, the coins drop and they come to faith. And so do you see what's happening here? I mean, it's just really the brilliance of God, the way he works. He waits till the time of harvest, but then he comes in and harvests souls together. He plants a big church and it gets started. And in so doing, he's fulfilling what Jesus called the Great Commission. When Jesus said, go off into the world and preach the gospel to every nation, But Jesus also said, you know, pray for workers of the harvest, right? Jesus says that there got to be people that are going to harvest. You know, we are one big harvest here. That harvest would start with the Jewish of the nations, but then it would move to the non-Jewish people. Many of you, most of you, are part of that harvest. It's a glorious thing. And someone, God used someone to plant seeds and to harvest you. It may have been your mom and dad. It may have been your grandparents. It may have been a friend at college. It may be a work colleague. But you heard about the Gospel, and God brought you into that fold. Would you pray that God brings workers for the harvest to our church? You know, pray that God brings gatherers Pray that people that have that gift, it gets fanned into flame because we need people to help us bring in the harvest, don't we? Jesus says before, go do. He says, pray that there'll be workers of the harvest. But there are a couple more festivals we need to look at. One was called the Feast of Trumpets. Now, trumpets get your attention, right? You hear a trumpet, "Ah," and it gets your attention. And it meant to because this was the most sacred month of Israel, It was the month of atonement. And there were two feasts. One was the Day of Atonement, and the other was the Passover. Now you know from our study that the Day of Atonement was the day, the one day a year, that the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And they sacrificed an animal and he would sprinkle blood in the tabernacle. And it was the day that he put himself, his family, and the people of Israel before God to say, atone for our sins. God commanded him to do that. This is a wonderful God. He commands you to be forgiven. He commands you to be saved and delivered. But also, there was something that happened with two goats. Maybe you've heard the phrase scapegoat before. Well, that actually comes from a biblical idea. Two goats were brought by the people. One goat, they did this by lot. One goat would be sacrificed, but the other one, the high priest, would lay his hands on the head of the goat and they would shoo that goat way out into the wilderness where it would never be seen again. A reminder of the biblical promise that he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. But Jesus Christ, as we know, is depicted in those we sang about, the Lamb who is my righteousness. Jesus is that sacrifice on the day of atonement, the day that He was crucified on the cross. That is the day of atonement. The one that all these look forward to. And Jesus is the one that takes your sins far, far, far away from you. They get placed on His head and He's crucified outside of the city. I need to ask you, And what are you trusting for atonement? And what do you trust for atonement? Practically, I mean. Are are you trusting in this idea that, you know, God will grade on a curve and things will shake out at the end? I think a lot of people really do trust in that. This idea that when I get up there, even if I didn't really believe in you, even if I didn't know what's going on, if there is a God, I'm going to show up and he'll see I wasn't as bad as I should be and that's going to be my ticket. So you're trusting in yourself, in your own merit for atonement. Other people trust in the things that they do, whether they're religious or non-religious, whether it's my nonprofit work or the fact that I'm committed to a church. But none of that was God's Story That wasn't what He planned. The atonement that He has offered is through His Son. He dies the death we should have death. He lived the life we should have lived. And the Lamb becomes our righteousness. But then the Passover also brings us in another direction. The Passover was a celebration of God's election and God's grace. Now, those of you familiar, has anybody ever attended a Passover meal? I'm curious couple people. Yeah, more than a couple. Yeah. Well, you know, this was the feast that God commanded Israel to do before they left Egypt. And uh, Passover comes from the name that he would pass over the homes that had put blood on the doorpost. It wasn't because it was magic. There were a couple things that we learned from that, right? One, we learned that it wasn't like God just passed over Israel because they were Israel. This wasn't nationalism. This wasn't God saying, well, gee, I just like the Israel people. They would be judged in their sin and guilt. They were sinners too, just like the Egyptians. But God, in his mercy, says, although you don't deserve it, I'm going to be the one that puts the sign or gives you the opportunity for a sign. And then they had this meal together, right? They would eat bitter herbs. That was to remind them of the slavery that they had in Egypt. They would have greens that were dipped in salt water. That was to remind them of crossing the Red Sea. They would also consume a lamb that had no broken bones. If you go to the Gospels at the crucifixion, you notice something that happens. Jesus is being crucified next to two thieves. And after people suffered in the crucifixion, right, because you're nailed to a cross, and the way people would try to stay alive because their lungs were closing in was they would naturally push up on their legs just to get air. And after a time, the Roman soldiers would come by and they would break the legs of people so they wouldn't be able to push up and they would die sooner. But we're told when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. Why does God say that? Because God wanted to fulfill that Jesus was the Passover lamb. No bones would be broken. But also, we're told that this meal was replaced. When Jesus had the Last Supper with His disciples, He was saying, I fulfilled the Passover meal. That was the Old Covenant meal. This is the New Covenant meal. This is the meal that tells a different story, right? But the same story as well. As you look at the bread and the wine representing His blood and body, you realize He took the bitterness for me. He drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs. That He was the one that crossed my Red Sea, the sea of death for me. That He crossed from death into life. That He was the Lamb that was slain. And He was the one that lived without any leaven. In the Passover, one of the things that had to be done is they had to clear yeast or leaven out of the home. It was an object lesson again everywhere you imagine all the work that was. They have brooms, everything. They're making sure there's not any in the house. God wanted them to be meticulous, seeing whether or not there was yeast, leaven, anywhere in the house. Well, you and I are supposed to have a similar response. Jesus said in Matthew 16 that that leaven is a metaphor for corruption or sin. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. Cleanse out the old leaven, for Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you understand what he's saying there? He co-ops the festival of the Passover and he's saying, when you and I come away from this table, from our feast, our response should be, I'm going to examine my life to see if there's corruption in sin. Is there bitterness lingering? Is there lust lingering? Is there greed lingering? We're to examine ourselves after the feast that we might rid ourselves of all those things. Well, for the last feast that we'll talk about, and this briefly, was the feast of the tabernacle and the feast of the booths. This was sort of Israel's version of going camping. Well, they did a lot of camping in the wilderness, but this was a different sort. Now imagine it was supposed to be fun, but they would make these booths, temporary booths together, and they'd have to live there for a week. There'd be a a big feast at the beginning, a big feast at the end. And that was supposed to remind them of the wandering they had in the desert. They had no place to go. They were wandering in the wilderness. So another genius of God, the way he plans things, you go to the gospel and Israel's celebrating that feast and Jesus comes into the feast. And on the last day, he says, if anybody is thirsty, they can come to me and I will give them water, living water for life. What happened when Israel was thirsty in the desert? God called miracle water to come out of a rock. Jesus is saying, I am that rock. I am the water that you need to drink. That means if you're in a wilderness right now, the wilderness of loneliness, the wilderness of sorrow, the wilderness of skepticism, the wilderness of poverty or sickness, He meets you with what you need. He meets you with water for your soul that you might be able to go on. This is the fulfillment because you and I are still pilgriming. Sometimes we forget this. God said that His kingdom had come, but it's not all the way here. Why is it important to remember we're still pilgriming? Because you won't get so bummed out and depressed when you think, why do I feel this kind of, like I'm lost? Because we're still pilgriming together. But there you have the Messiah in the wilderness calling you to Himself. And in that, we take all these feasts together and these festivals, and we gather them all together, and we realize they're a shadow. They're a shadow of the feast of the Messiah. The feast of the Lamb of God. The day where you and I will eat at the table of God and there'll be no more tears and there'll be no more sorrow and there'll be no more sin and no more loneliness. We will sit at that table with Him. All those feasts were pointing ahead. And it's the Messiah who has basically provided for everything we've talked about over these last weeks. It's Christ that's given us a sacred place in Himself. It's Christ that has led us in sacred acts as we offer ourselves. It is Christ who is the high priest who has made us priests. And it is Christ who has given us sacred time because we'll feast for eternity. As C.S. Lewis would say, you know, uh, joy is the serious business of heaven. And so, we'll come to this table again. But there's a lot happening here. It looks pretty plain. But as you come forward, think about the legacy of feasts that are fulfilled here and will be fulfilled at that time. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your commitment to feed Your people rich food and wine on the mountain of the Lord. We pray as we come forward and eat we would start to taste the menu on the other side. Help us to come in faith. In Christ's name, amen.